In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Betches Moms, with hosts Aileen Drexler and Brittany Levine. Get ready to lock yourself in the bathroom or wherever else you hide from your kids because you'll literally never be alone again. Hello and welcome to Betches Moms. I'm Aileen. And I'm Brittany. And today we are joined by Emily Beerley. She is a marriage and family therapist and sex therapist. I'm very excited for this conversation. Welcome, Emily. Hi, guys. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Thrilled to be here. I, well, I got to do some Instagram with you guys last week, so I'm like... Fuck yeah, bitches this week. <laughs> I am like, here I am on all platforms. I love it. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. So if you follow along, Betches Moms, you'll recognize Emily from our stories. She came on for National Infertility Awareness Week. You so bravely spoke about uh, your struggles with infertility and offered amazing, helpful advice to everybody. You know, it's so wild because we're going to sit here and we're going to talk today really about sex. And sex can become incredibly complex, especially people that were trying very intentionally to get pregnant. And when there's like this hyper focus on making a baby and what's my peak ovulation day and did I test and did I take my Clomid and I did I do all my fucking, uh, you know, progesterone suppositories, so many different things. It's not so much about pleasure. And so then what we want is with the ever-changing body shapes and body image, go have good sex. Well, that's a little bit of a setup for failure when we have sort of grown up without a ton of amazing information about how to have great sex with ever-changing bodies and relationships. Oh boy, that sure. was that was a lot. That was loaded. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be like, yes, and yeah, about yeah. like four different things. Uh-huh. <laughs> it like, is it agree. is pretty interesting that like sex is what for some people starts pregnancy. And then for a lot of people, the lack of it might like end marriage. You know, like that yes. like, sex is such like a a piece of the puzzle. And then on top of that, nobody talks about it. So yeah. I'm so glad we're having this conversation because nobody talks about it. Nobody right. talks about your sex life. It's so taboo. I'm a fucking prude. So like, <laughs> I don't talk <laughs> about it, but I'm so glad you're here to, you know, just put all the words in our mouth. <laughs> well, it's so interesting because sex is one of those things where when you're not having it, it's the biggest issue in the world. And when you are having it, it's not a big deal, right? So it's like one of those things where it's like, it is really easy to get into a scarcity mindset, especially like during your pregnancy, right? Especially like, you know, that nausea, that first trimester, that's no fucking joke that you are so sick and you're also not telling people. So you're sick as shit. You're pretending like everything's fine at work and in your relationship, your partner, if they've never been pregnant before, let's say if you're in a heterosexual relationship and your partner's never been pregnant, they really don't get it. 
right? So they try their best to understand. But this is when you start to see a little bit of rupture in relationships where it's like, you don't fully understand my experience here. You don't yeah. understand that we're sitting here talking about what my, my body's going to look like, my changes on my body. So that's really cool that we're sitting here picking out names and you like that part. But <laughs> what we're also talking about is massive changes the other way. And that can really affect them. If you think about you know, how much self-esteem and body image can also affect sex, you know, regardless of pregnancy, it's a lot. Right. And there's and it, just so much ever changing. It just doesn't end. It doesn't yeah. end. Like, once the kids come, then you're in a completely different playing field. That's a whole other. As well. Yes. <laughs> it's yes, not just absolutely. the two of you. Um, no. So question. So just in general regarding sex, what are some common like issues or concerns that women come to you for that are often afraid to ask other people? So I think one of the reasons a lot of people end up coming in to talk about sex is one, there's so much miscommunication. And there's this other thing that happens is sometimes when you talk to other people about sex, they do one of two things, which is we never have sex. Oh, I'm sure it's not as bad as me. Or what do you mean? We have no problem with sex. So it's either that <laughs> when you go and like look for this advice and look for this community support, a lot of times you don't get it. And it's also a lot of times the blind leading the blind. So a lot of times when you go in and you want to go talk and sit with a professional, one of the things that we're trained to do as sex therapists is also not react, right? So when you come in and say, I actually haven't had sex with my spouse in six years, some people might say, holy fuck, six years? Where we're trained yeah. to not even change the level and the tone of our voice to say, great, so tell me a little bit more about how that's impacted you. Right. Because yeah. it's just when it comes to sex, it is very very easy to feel judged. And guess what? That's a lot like motherhood. It yeah. is so easy to feel like my kid doesn't sleep and hers does, or my kid doesn't eat vegetables and hers does. And all of a sudden, that's some indicator of my worth. And so it's very, very hard to open up about these things when they feel like they could shut us down and are vulnerably down Im immediately. Is there such a thing as a normal sex life? No. <laughs> is no, there but but or what people, healthy or healthy sex life yes okay yes and what everyone always wants to know is what is the normal amount of times to have sex this is the number one question i get people want to know well for me to be normal how often should i have sex and if you want me to give you a number we say it's around 60 times a year which basically is maybe like once a week in holidays once a week and all okay. that's like yeah if you want an actual number that's where they go with but does that number sudden, change yes. over time though <laughs> well that's what i mean here's the thing there's no actual research on this when we do this type of research it's self-report people are under reporting and over reporting all the time so you can't actually take those numbers as like true to form facts but yes do you want to have a healthy sex life i describe a healthy sex life as whoever is in the relationship feeling heard, experiencing pleasure, and having consent, right? So feeling heard when I talk to my partner about needing to take a break from sex or needing to re-energize our sex life, that they listen to me. Um, uh, feeling pleasure. Sex is not just for obligation. Sex is not just because I'm trying to check it off my list. We've all done that before, right? Hey, did I have sex with him this week? Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. It's Saturday. I haven't done it yet. I better do it tonight, right? What we don't want is that because that's also can breed resentment. And then the last one is consent. To feel like I'm an 
active participant and eagerly wanting to do this. And this can be very difficult because one of the things that happens after you give birth is you get the six-week checkout. Brittany, you know what I'm talking about. I it's do. The check, it's the checkup where they check. They do one little finger inside <laughs> and they say, okay, good to have sex. And that's the whole thing. There's no conversation. Do you feel ready to have sex? There's no conversation. Are you emotionally ready to have sex? There's no conversation about it. It's just here. Nothing will rip if you do it, basically, is what they're saying. Right. And so then all of a sudden there's this pressure and a lot of people are waiting. Oh, I got to wait six weeks. I got to wait six weeks. And there's this pressure, which maybe I don't feel ready. Maybe I had a traumatic birth or maybe I had a C-section and I'm still in pain and recovery from that you know, huge surgery I went through. And that can start to be what we really call as a bit of the rupture of the relationship, which is all of a sudden my partner goes in super, super excited for me for those six weeks. I walk out of that appointment like, fuck, I have to now go have sex. And right then we stopped thinking about pleasure and intentional conversation and we went to obligation. And that's when we can start to lose ourselves a little bit. And it's not just the ready, though, like physically or like really emotionally. It's I mean, emotionally, but it's also like maybe you don't feel sexy, like for, forget even how you feel. You're just yes. Like, I just I feel gross. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. At any I point in your pregnancy it. or just. Yeah. And the hormones that are like literally upside down. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. And it's also really hard. And that's like one of the things is that, and you hear just so much information. Oh, I was so horny in my whole pregnancy, or I had no drive at all. Right. And so you start to compare yourself about like, oh, is there something wrong with my pregnancy? Am I doing something wrong that I'm not super aroused during my second trimester, like other people say? And that can start to fuck with you when you do that comparison. But you're right. It's all of those types of, am I ready? whether we're talking prepartum or postpartum. Do you think that this is like a conversation you should have with your partner, maybe even before you have the baby? Like, how do you start this conversation so that you could set expectations with mm-hmm. your partner? So it's not like, okay, the six weeks is up. Let's get to it. Yes. So Absolutely. So the conversation, what we want to talk about, and this is something that we describe as conscious and unconscious contracts, right? So a lot of times I have an unconscious contract, and that would be once the baby comes, he'll stop drinking so much. Once, um, you know, once I deliver, my body will feel back to mine again. Once she hits six weeks, she'll have sex with me. And so a lot of us in our marriages and in our relationships have unconscious contracts. What our job, and what a surprise, I'm a therapist. We love talking about this shit. We love talking about everything all damn day long is how do I bring the unconscious into the conscious of saying to my partner, hey, guess what? They're going to this is what's going to happen because a lot of people don't know this information right at the hospital. They're going to tell us we have to wait for six weeks. And then at that appointment, you're going to think that I you may think that I'm going to come home from that appointment and rip my clothes off. I want to be honest with you that no matter what happens at this appointment today, I'm not sure where I'm at sexually, and I'd like to make sure that it's an ongoing conversation. This feels weird to say, but it's incredibly important to start the conversation around it. And also, it gives your partner something to expect. They don't know anything either. We're all just figuring this shit out. Right. Right. Um, can I just say one thing? Because we were talking about healthy sex life. <laughs> yes. And I've really been waiting to say this somewhere on some podcast. But one of my biggest pet peeves of the whole world is when like people ask, like, oh, what's the what's the secret to a healthy marriage? Ugh. And then the answer is always, oh, blowjobs. And <laughs> I, it pisses me off so much because, A, like it just means that the guy, the man has to be 
Like that's otherwise he's out. Like that to me is the most annoying. I think everyone needs to stop doing it. All men. It it happened to me recently. I was in like talk to someone and that's what they said. And I was like, ew. Ew, So I just, I hate that. I think it's like, we need to come back to like the healthy, like you said, the healthy sex life is about pleasure on both ends for both both partners. God, but thank you for saying that because how many of us as women, if you have never read before and just, you know, if you have, um, Peggy Ornstein is a sexuality researcher and she's written Girls in Sex and Boys in Sex. And it she goes through research of girls from like starting at like six years old and talking about like all the sex. It's unbelievable reading this book. But one of the things she talks about is how soon in our sexuality development, us as women learn to give blowjobs and handjobs just to avoid having sex, right? Oh, keep them around, but if you're not ready to have sex, then you can just give them a BJ. We're literally told that. You're told that from someone on the bus. You're told that from a cousin. So you are right. That is such, first of all, a misogynistic and harmful, harmful idea. But also what it's saying is your pleasure doesn't matter. Totally. And it's very important, especially for every woman listening to this, that your pleasure matters so much. And you have to advocate for that self-pleasure. And one of the best ways to start to do this throughout pregnancy and postpartum is sex with yourself and learning how does my new body feel pleasure. And that can be really uncomfortable with us, especially for those of us who grew up in what we'd call as like a purity culture household that didn't talk about this, but it's how we relearn our bodies again because you deserve pleasure and no, the secret to a healthy marriage and happy marriage is sure as fuck not blowjobs. Right. And also <laughs> just like I hate that like men men think that's funny. And it's then, not. but they think that there's like reality in it. Like literally, a guy said that. I was like, "Go away!" <laughs> Ew, that's so gross. That's like it's an so old gross. way of thinking. It was an older like, person. <laughs> Ew, that's even worse. <laughs> I didn't know him. <laughs> no, I'm so glad you said that though, because but I can I've heard guarantee it everywhere. Yes, yeah, you're not the only person. So somebody listening to this needed to hear you say that to say, "Oh my God, wait, no, that is harmful." This thing that I've laughed off for forever. Because how often do we do that? How often do we laugh off sexist and misogynistic things? And it's going to start to happen. Oh, do you have two babies in there? Oh man, it must be uh, still working off that pregnancy weight. All the shit we say is so misogynistic. So when we bring children into the mix, we know that this affects us in every way, shape or form. So only natural that it's now affecting our sex lives. Do you feel like this is one of the bigger challenges that people come to you with? Absolutely. Because if you think about it, you know, not all of us are most aroused after the kids go down. And a lot of us are very touched out after the kids go down. And if you're someone who's pregnant, you're soon going to figure out what that phrase means, which is if you spent all day being touched by, I call my, my daughter's hands banana hands because she's always covered in banana for some goddamn reason. <laughs> um, and she's always coming up, touching me by banana hands. So yes, by the by the time I get her to bed, you know, is the last thing I really want to do, like get in bed with my husband? Like, Often not. But also some people, their highest libido time is in the morning. Some people, their highest libido time is daytime. And so that's really hard. If I'm home with my kids and I'm not my most sexual in the evening, that's going to be difficulty, right? So like in a logistical standpoint, when do we fit in sex? How, how do we prioritize it and make it intentional? And that's why so often it ends up being I just mark it off the checklist. So we just screw at the end of the night, it's over, go to bed, and that's anything. And I didn't really enjoy it, but I crossed it off the list, and now I've bought myself another week. 
So, yes, I would say the people come in. That <laughs> all of this stuff, when I, you know, because I really have changed my whole practice to specializing in postpartum. And it's the number one thing I see is how do I love myself and how do I love my partner after this? Because I sure as hell love my kid a ton. That part's easy. Yeah. But it's all the other stuff I'm struggling with. But, and it's also so, how do you keep it all like how do you keep it alive for, yeah. for a long time? Because yes. I was good, the, the follow up to that is like, is it the children that are the challenge or is it time that becomes the challenge? Like the not the increase of time or staying together for a long time. Yeah. Is that is that the biggest wrench thrown in to your normal, quote unquote, sex life? Both is the answer to that, yeah. which is one, yes, is over time, how do we keep things hot? How do we keep things intimate? How do we keep ourselves emotionally connected enough that we have pleasurable sex? And then also there is like some logistical stuff, right? If I have a child that has night terrors, well, guess what I'm going to be doing at night? Probably taking care of my kid. If, I, if I've made the decision to co-sleep as a family, well, that might be difficult as well. So there's some stuff that is like, okay, if I'm actually talking about carving out time, or let's say that we're in, you know, a, a smaller space and, and I am someone who it's hard for me to get out of my head and I hear the monitor on and I can't think about anything else besides that damn sound machine, right? These are all things that are going to be difficult, to get into it. So there's a logistical part. And then there is our emotionally and pleasure focused. Do I want to have sex with this person? And what, and what is the point of sex? Because if sex, there was this big focus, like that's like one of the things we have to talk about is like, what is the function behind this? Is it to just have a kid? Is it to just make my partner happy? Or is it because we really enjoy and feel connected? And this is an important thing for our marriage and relationship. Right. What are some ways that you could get around that? Because if you feel like sex is a really important uh, staple of your marriage and you want to keep it alive, but you have little kids at home or big kids, whatever. Um, Like how do you make it work? What are some things that you could do? So there's certain things you could do, right? So some people decide to go um, by the uh, two, two, two rule, which is a date night twice a month, a night, um, a night away together every two months, and then a trip away together every two years, right? So that's like some people like the idea of like, if I can focus on it in a logistical way, that like for those of us that are like analytical people, we like following something like the two, two, two rule. Now, for the rest of us that are a little bit different, there's some people that really struggle with the idea of planned sex, So they really think that sex should always be organic and it always should be spontaneous. These people are going to struggle a little bit more in parenthood when it comes to sex because you might have to be a little bit more communication about it, right? So you might have to say to your partner, hey, I really am feeling aroused today. I'm interested in this. Um, How can we set this up for later tonight? I know that doesn't sound sexy. (laughs) It just sounds funny. Like, hey there, I'm aroused right now. (laughs) I'm aroused today. (laughs) I'm feeling a little fire uh, with my loins here. Right? So yeah, so it sounds silly. So something I've had couples do before is they have a sex candle, right? So there's a specific candle on their dresser. If I light it, that means I'm interested for tonight. And if you keep it lit, you're interested. If not, you blow it out. And these are all, these sound silly, but for those of us that actually really no. struggle with communication, yeah. it's like, oh, like a candle feels so much safer to me. I think that's a great idea, that's but great I'm idea. just thinking of myself doing it and like my it husband just, laughing at me. It just yeah, sounds oh, like something like you're either signaling you want like 
a threesome or something mm, like yeah. which might <laughs> or, be fun too <laughs> yeah. or it's just like you're turning your light on for like the window that like yes well it's sort of yeah it's like it, oh my god it's totally well I think that that isn't like it's a red light district kind of yeah thing. right but yeah exactly. like my, yeah it, like we're like doing a little bit of that yeah but I like Brittany you it's just talked about it's like my husband would laugh we that's good we want that sex can be silly sex can be joyful sex can be immature we can giggle we can make it because what it's saying is like this is silly and I can honor this and still I really want to do this with you so even if we're laughing about it it's better than never talking about it at all which really is what happens yeah that's that's true. true I like that yeah and I like thinking of it as a red light district, actually. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> and sort of sexy think, to think about it like that. Also just thinking it's like, because we, like how we were saying before, it's such a serious topic, like it, it shouldn't be. I know, but right, but it has so much weight to it because it feels like there's all this tension behind it, right? Like yeah. it feels like, am I doing it well? Am I doing it enough? Am I comfortable? Am I making you happy? Are you going to leave me? Because this is also, there's also the misogyny behind that of like the fact that we were many times in our life told as girls, if you don't keep him happy, he'll find it somewhere else. Like that's a real thing you're taught from an early age, whether it's from yeah. books or movies. And that is incredibly harmful and also leads to shitty sex and intimacy. Right. Is well, it doing ha- it for the wrong reasons? Yeah. How? So let's say like a couple it doesn't have good communication beyond the candle. Yeah. How do you talk about it in a way? How do you open your yourselves up to talk about it more? Like, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Like, how do you make yourselves? I, like, I think the silliness is a great tip, but how, how, how do you make it a, a normal part of your conversation? So, so, it's, so mm-hmm. you feel more safe. Yes. So, and this is why a lot of times people end up going to see a therapist and, and specifically right. someone who it's really, it's very, very important when we're talking about sex, it's somebody who's trained in sex because every therapist is not trained in these, in these exact ways of how to not be reactive, how to make it really safe, how to create this space. But another thing I also recommend is like, this is when it's really great to read a book together. Specifically, um, a lot of times I recommend for males, Ian Kerner, She Comes First. And I also really recommend Emily Nagowski's Come As You Are. And one of the things I love about Emily Nagowski's book is there's actually some activities in it to do together. And it's, it's written about and it's done in a very good way that you can actually read a chapter, highlight parts of it, and hand that over to your partner. And sometimes and, – and that is a really good way to start the conversations because just yeah. sitting down and, like, looking at each other across the table, you're like, uh, how do we do this? And so sometimes having a little prompt there is very, very helpful. Yeah. Because it's I mean, kind of like your own – like you're creating your own sex therapist. Exactly. Yep. And another thing, thing, yeah. Sorry. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say that. And the other thing people will also start to do is that you have to remember we have, like, our parents did not have the internet generation of all the access to ethical pornography, all the access to, right? Like, our, I mean, think about what happened when Fifty Shades of Grey came out. Moms are like hiding in the corner <laughs> reading it. Like, we actually, <laughs> women my mom's are, favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> because we were given this idea that women are not sexual. That is not true. So in our mother's generation, it was about keep your husband close. You are, as soon as you get married, no, sex disappears. That's like a threat that you hear. And that idea is that women aren't sexual. That's not true. But women haven't been prioritized for pleasure. And that leads to a massive lack of arousal because, yeah, why the hell do I want to do that for someone else? 
Right. right. And I think, a, but so that, so put, put that on the table. Women under, finally understand that their pleasure is important, but then also training men to start thinking that way too is is a piece of the puzzle. So it's a big piece. It's a yeah. it's a big it's and a I, big and I don't piece. think we're there yet. Like <laughs> no, nope. even like I remember like the guys I met in college or even after like and whether or not I knew that it was misogyny at the time, like the things that I've heard or heard guys say guys I was friends with just like, it's, it's, it's so the opposite of what we're talking about. And I don't, I definitely don't feel like we're there yet with some men like hopefully or the ones that we've chosen are there, but there's so many who are not. I think just when we're like talking about it in a bigger conversation, like you never, it's always about the guy. So it's like, even if behind closed doors, they're not like that, or we feel like the men we chose are not like that when everybody's together or just in society in general, we're not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, think about it. I mean, how often have you heard people talk about, maybe not that often, maybe this is just my weird job, but um, I like, right, I've heard people all the time booking blowjob classes, right? Like, this is a thing you can like book on your bachelorette is like, school. learn how to, yeah, right? Like how to give a blowjob and stuff. And that's me like, these are things that we're like taught from a young age that we unfortunately don't teach men often about how to give women a lot of pleasure. Like a lot of times they don't have the skills to do this. It's not learned. And honestly, the most accessible pornography, especially like in our millennial generation that men had access to was not a really great teaching tool. It also, <laughs> like, think about American Pie. Like, that came out. Oh. And the in order to find, like, the key to giving women head was, like, this <laughs> book underneath some library. Like, that's how taboo it was. Yeah. And yes. that's the movie that, like, <gasps> the guys that we grew up with have referenced. <laughs> I mean, oh I was thinking this in my yes. head, like, right before you said it. I was thinking of that scene. Like, warm apple pie. Like, yes. come on. <laughs> yes. But, but like, what a great thing to bring in. So, like, look at that. It was so extreme. It's not talked about. Girls will talk about how do you give a hand job, but, like, it's really not this open thing to talk about. So if we could normalize female sexual pleasure, especially during pregnancy and postpartum, it could lead to stronger marriages. I firmly believe that. Yeah. I think communication of- – is the key to everything. Yeah. <laughs> the communication, like, like I know. All things. But yeah, especially with sex, because it because it's taboo, it adds another layer. And because there's because you're in a relationship for so long, it becomes mm-hmm. you you have to then like come up with you have to be so proactive about it. It's yes. not just the communication, it's the proactivity. Yes. And it's easy to let yourself sort of just like, I don't need it. Well, and so you just talked about something really good. So the, the how we call that clinically is attunement. And so what we talk about attunement is you have a choice. If I, if I walk in the house and I see my partner's pissed off, and I know he's pissed off because he's slamming doors and he's you know pulling the ziplocks out all feisty and shit, right? So in my <laughs> moment, I was like, oh man, he's in a bad mood. And in that moment, I have two choices, which is to walk over him and to say, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Or I say. Oh, man, he looks very upset. I think I'm going to go upstairs and take care, you know, go upstairs and maybe get changed before I deal with him. So in that moment, you just made a decision to not go towards your partner's attunement. And this can also happen with sex. I can notice something is off during sex and I can ignore it. Or afterwards, you can feel a little bit of that tension or I can feel this stuff. And instead of saying like, hey, what just happened here? 
hey, did you enjoy that? Is there anything you'd like me to do different? Can we talk about this, right? How do we actively improve our sex life? So that is through that attunement and then the communicating exactly what you just said. How do you make therapy less taboo? Couples therapy, sex therapy, because I think it's even couples therapy, I think is is only a thing that people do when they have problems. But I believe it's uh, an amazing tool for health, healthy the relationships. The number thing we can do, especially as women, is stop using it as a thread. So often I hear couples fight and say, if, if you can't handle this, we're going to go to couples therapy. That's not what couples therapy is. It's not my job to yell at your husband. So like, I think that like one of the things, one of the reasons it's also taboo, you have to remember, is there's an insurance part of it. So there is this additional part that most insurance companies do not cover couples therapy. And so when you're sitting there paying out of pocket, all of a sudden it's different. The other thing insurance companies insist on is a diagnosis if they're going to do that coverage. And so a lot of couples don't want to go in and get diagnosed. And so two of those large issues that we as therapists and we as individuals do not have control over is the insurance companies. And so when we talk about people aren't the problem, policy is, this unfortunately goes into a systemic thing of the insurance. Now, but what what we can do on an individual level is if you go to couples therapy, not out of crisis, just out of maintenance, tell people that's wonderful that that couples therapy the research shows us that people come into couples therapy seven years too late. Wow. Seven years. I can't tell you how many voicemails a day my my business gets that says, hey, we're calling in. It's our last ditch effort before divorce. If it's your last ditch effort before divorce, there's not a ton I can do. I can still work my ass off for you, but that's still really far. Go in sooner. Go in and think about it as preventative medicine before it spreads. That's the best thing. If you are fighting all the time or never talking about anything all the time, you got to go on in. And so the other thing is you can also go in, have a few sessions and say, you want to know what? We got something out of this. We don't have to beat it to the ground. So there isn't one right way to do therapy. It's about finding the right therapist that's a good fit for you and then advocating and growing outside the room as well. Do you think that even if you feel like you're in a healthy relationship, your communication is good, like you can't really think of any red flags, it makes sense for maybe you to go just to, like you said, preventative medicine, see if there is anything you could work on, or is that kind of fishing for something? No, I don't think so. But I think that's a lot of people's fear. I think that's a great thing to break up to bring to bring up. (laughs) That's what we call a Freudian slip. People's fear (laughs) is that they bring it up. It's going to things are going to get worse. But guess what? If that's your fear, there's already some shit you're putting down. Mm. So a great thing to say is, hey, you know what? We're due with this baby in August. I'm starting to have some stuff come up about body image. I've been sort of doing some individual work, but I'd like to have a few sessions with us together to plan out what our next phase will look like together. And if something comes up during that time, it's better. You're doing it in a safe way because if not, it's going to come up three years later while you're screaming at each other over Christmas dinner and you're drunk. That's what we want to prevent. And that's <laughs> right. totally what will happen. Oh I have about 30 billion stories about that. I'm sure you do. Drinking. Wait, speaking <laughs> of body image, let's talk about this. I mean, personally, I've 
years ago in therapy, when I went to therapy, I would say like, anytime I like complained about my relationship with Rusty, I would say to my therapist, I'd be like, I'm not sure if this is a problem I have with him or this is like an insecurity I have about myself and I'm taking it out on him. Like Mm. I feel bad about myself and I'm just mad and I'm taking it out on him. Like how, how, so body image, obviously is something you specialize in. How does that play into a relationship? Obviously getting pregnant is a whole nother ball game. So what do you see in your practice? So I think you're right. I think it can totally affect. I mean, you can have a bad, you wake up having those bad body image days that can fuck up your whole day. Like those are no joke. I mean, that is waking up. You start going into some type of body checking mode. You're so aware of everything. You're watching what other people are eating, what you're eating. Maybe you're not feeding self as much. So your irritability is up. And then you notice when you're in that, you're also doing that ruminating in your head that will cause you often to lash out at your partner. So The same thing to think about is what's the preventative medicine here? And often it's saying to my partner, listen, I woke up in a really bad body image day. I am really struggling. So I need to focus and sometimes saying it out loud, I need to focus on feeding myself today of wearing clothes I feel comfortable with, maybe taking a little break from staring in mirrors and like actively talking to your partner about this. We are having a life together. You're sharing a life with your partner. We should tell them what's happening. We are so quick to tell our girlfriends what are happening. I woke up, I feel like shit, but am I communicating the same thing in my romantic relationship? Because it could affect our marriage and my whole household, right? You know when you're in a bad mood and you can just fuck up the whole house? Like you're just like, man, I'm just going to go and my energy is like here and it's wild. going to tear shit apart. I'm just going to burn this shit to the ground. And so part of that is like how do I then vocalize it to my partner? And that's starting out by saying I'm not actually not asking you to fix this. I'm just telling you that I'm struggling today. Because then you know what they might say is well, let's go have your favorite food tonight. Let's go watch a movie tonight. What do you need to feel safe? and saying it out loud and creating space for yourself to exist in exactly where you are, especially when it comes to the rapid body image changes that throughout pregnancy. Because right after you give birth, you may feel amazing. And then six weeks later, you may not feel so great. Or three months later, or for some people, postpartum depression can hit a year later and they can really come up. So making sure you're actively checking in with yourself where you're at and also communicating that to your partner. Yeah, that's great advice. It's definitely hard. (laughs) It's so hard. I mean, because here's the thing. It's not fixed, man. Like, that's the worst part is like so often I tell people like people want to come into therapy and they want it fixed. And man, I sure shit wish I had that a a magic wand. But it is a lifetime challenge, especially for those of us that grew up with distorted eating and distorted body image from our childhood, it's not going to be solved over a decade. But here's one of the most powerful things I can bring up to you is that I believe it is our job to break intergenerational patterns of disordered eating, body image, and eating disorders. And the number one way we do that is actually through motherhood. If you want to think about how we actually make this world a better place, it's mom's. It's parents, well, and that sounds <laughs> and that sounds wild, but that's how much power we have. When I think about how I think about my body, how I dress in front of my daughter, I am so completely different now that I'm a mom. And this also goes for all of our boy moms too, because we want them to believe that 
anyone is sexual in whatever body. This is how we can stop conversations of anti-fatness and fat phobia. And so I think if we want to have serious generational change, it comes from moms. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Uh, that's why I was going to see the said therapist. I was like, I need to get my head straight. Um, I like, you know, I was taking, I was lashing out because I didn't feel good about myself. I fixing disordered eating you can listen to diet starts tomorrow. Anybody and um, <laughs> years of content there. And just for the sole, sole result of not passing it down to my future. Hey, guess what? I'm having a daughter daughter. Cause I know this was done on purpose to me. So just for that same that's it, that results. Um, but thank you. That's good advice. <laughs> it's it's such a long thing. And and there is, I think about like, it is a privilege to be able to like change our children's lives, right? Like I am so happy. And our mom, I truly believe that our moms tried their best too, right? Yeah. At the time, like slim fast and 100 calorie packs were the normal for our moms. And for right. a lot of them, they just wanted us to not have to deal with body image. So they tried to make us go in smaller bodies. They forgot to tell us that our bodies can exist at any size. And so we have a ton of power here. And I'll tell you this. My daughter is two. I have lost almost none of my baby weight. And her fucking ass the other night is like, Mommy, get naked. Get in the bathtub. She just she just thinks it's hilarious I have big titties. Like, that's <laughs> it. Like, that's the whole thing. There's nothing else. She likes to be as squishy as... I am and uh-huh. that is unconditional love and that love that we've been trying to give to ourselves our whole life our children give to us and you get in the have, bathtub and I get in the fucking the bathtub yeah. I take off my damn clothes and I get in that bathtub <laughs> because that is actually healing in that moment that yeah. makes a difference because she sure as shit doesn't care totally. I mean but she but subconsciously she sees that you're you're yep. you get into the tub it's not like you're Just sitting that. there full clothed yeah you know? same thing with wearing a bathing suit at the beach of dressing myself of not saying no to being in pictures that's a big one i can't tell you how often i have moms that say well i didn't want it to get in the family photo because i look so bad your kid yeah. just wants that photo i promise you but it yeah. is hard and it's an ongoing journey and it's a journey that we need it's it's less about confidence and it's more about self-compassion. I truly think if you are going to work on one skill, let go of self-esteem and and anchor towards self-compassion. We have some audience questions that are specific. <laughs> going back <laughs> into the sex direction. <laughs> yeah. I could talk about this for like 24 hours straight, like a marathon. <laughs> but yeah, let's go into back to the sex. Um, I think a, a really interesting question that came in was feeling uncomfortable sexualizing your body that you're currently using to feed your child or yes. you did use to feed your child. How do you step away from that? Yeah, this is this is really tough. I breastfed my daughter for 20 months. Um, it's it's very hard to one not feel touched out, but also especially if you're pumping, pumping. If you've had this experience, it's like it's really is like milk being a fucking yeah. cow. I mean, your body like it's not great, and and. I actually think pumping can like make us just feel like an animal. Like you know, I'm doing this thing. I'm concentrating on the ounces. So I think one, you can take breaks from that, right? And so I know that's really hard. And listen, while I was breastfeeding, if somebody had ever told me to take a break, I would have been like, how can I do that? My supply, blah, blah, blah. But like you can. And right. And so what that might mean is saying to yourself, you want to know what today I'm going to pump or I'm not going to pump. 
and she'll only do bottles and I'm not going to breastfeed her. I'm going to take, I'm going to create some boundary with my body and I'm going to give myself time to feel aroused again. A lot of times it's like creating more space. We're used to maybe before just having a quickie or being ready one night. It's really important to say, you want to know what? I'm feeling touched out today, but we're going to try to have sex. So beforehand, I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to light candles. Maybe I'm going to watch some pornography I feel good with, or I'm going to listen to an erotic novel. I'm going to get myself into a sexual headspace and try to actually create a boundary there. And that's really helpful in sort of transitioning your mind because that's one of the things that can happen. It's really hard to go from mommy mode to partner mode, right? So if my mommy mode is like, did I did I get my last pump in before I fall asleep? Well, then after I pump, what? I have to pleasure you. Yeah. So it's 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 really important <laughs> to like actually set a boundary and then give yourself time to re-enter into your sexual self. But what if ritual. that's what if that's something that's not that doesn't actually go away? Because I kind of feel a connection to that question, um, even like after being done breastfeeding, yes. just like feeling like your boobs are like are sexual because they're not anymore yeah. like in your yes. head. And it's like not about stopping nursing or pumping for a day. It's an actual like a long time thing. Well, and one of the things that you can also ask yourself, and this is when it comes for the important conversation to me with your partner, which is maybe my boobs are no longer an erogenous zone for me. So maybe before they were an erotic zone for me and they were an erotic zone for my partner. But now maybe it's my neck or it's my lower back. So it's that you might have to rediscover other parts of your body. And you want to know what? If you have to take that away from your partner, I guess they'll have to grieve that. Yeah. It's your body. Interesting. And so, and so we say we have like, you know, we're so quick, especially for men, to give them all this space, right? Like, well, how could I take that away from my husband? Well, I don't know. You ripped your vagina open to give him a kid. So I said it's a pretty fucking fair <laughs> cutoff. So your partner is, one, allowed to be sad about that. And you're also allowed to say, still, I'm changing it. Right. And so that you can figure out how they can grieve that situation and you find new erotic zones on your body. We have just been made to told that our breasts and our vulva and vagina are the most sexual parts of ourselves. That's not everyone's case. So I would invite you to relearn about your body. And a great way to do this is through a sensual massage, something that we call essential exploration, maybe with a feather all over your body and relearning what parts of your body actually work for you. Great advice. Yeah. Um, so we, so we've been talking a lot about like with women's so, sort of like if you, whether you are in the mood or you're not in the mood, but what if you're, so one of the questions is what do you do if your, your partner doesn't want to have sex when you're pregnant? Mm -hmm. Because I've read so, that that happens. Yeah, so this can happen. And a lot of this also has to do with, you know, what we have taught men for a long time is arousing. And so something that can happen is when I start to think about you as a mom, that all of a sudden I struggle with this idea of you being a sexual creature. When I have put women into a dichotomous label of good versus bad and nice versus slutty or bitchy, right? Like these are labels we feel like we can often get put into. That probably means your partner might subscribe to that idea. So this is when it's going to get a little bit difficult of having the conversations because it sounds like your partner is going to have a little bit deeper work to do about what their thoughts around moms and sexuality is. Moms are allowed to be sexual. 
pregnant people are allowed to be sexual. If you look back at indigenous communities, they've been doing this for forever. We did not invent pregnancy. And they were having sex the whole time. Right. So we have to, this is like a Western idea of how we have made women into non-sexual beings when they become pregnant and become mothers. Yeah, like anytime I talk to like Rusty about it, he's like he'll he'll say like, "Oh, we're not gonna like hurt the kid." I'm like, "Come on, like, haven't you seen every movie?" They say, "No, yeah. don't worry." <laughs> so I think that's also like this freaked out part because also there are kids in there. Yes, and it's it's just a whole mixed bag of emotions, um, especially so it, though your mm-hmm. first trimester, you are. Like I had a really rough one and I was throwing up every single day. And then that just became this like icky sort of, I, I felt gross. I sort of smelled and <laughs> like had to brush my teeth three, four times a day, you know? So like that, it yes. became like, talk about boundary. It became that. But then I felt really comfortable. I stopped judging myself in that time. And I just became comfortable with the fact like this isn't happening this trimester. So we're just going to deal with that. Yep. And we'll we'll see how we feel later. And that once I gave myself that, like, as you say, compassion, everything worked out fine. But um, I, that I was really worked up about that. Mm-hmm. Well, and beginning. how much better than forcing yourself into something that you then resent and get angry at your partner about, right? It is so much better for your marriage to say, you want to know what? We're going to take a little hiatus sexually here. Take sex off the table for it's right now. <laughs> yes. And, and guess what? For the most part, your partner will be okay. And honestly, if they're not, that's a bigger conversation about respecting bodily autonomy and communication. The other really important thing you can do, which is especially right now with COVID, if your partner's allowed to come into the office, this This is sometimes the importance of having a great OBGYN who you feel comfortable talking to because you could say in those first appointments, hey, could you please first do a little psychoeducation with me and my spouse about sex during pregnancy and put it on your doctor. And if you have a doctor who's not comfortable talking about sex during pregnancy, that's something to consider because they should be. Um, But, you know, you never know. But Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's a great thing to bring up especially if you have a telehealth appointment and put that on right there in front of your spouse so they can hear it from the source. <laughs> I'm just imagining, Brittany, imagine my, my, my mom, I, we talked about it in a previous episode, like she, she gave me this like very graphic advice about like how to conceive. And I'm just imagining having that conversation with my mom. Now. I, I anyway. kind of feel like you should have a follow up and it should be great you, podcast content. Yeah, that She's, is very good content. We need to hear exactly what she says. It's uh-huh. so funny. But um, ask her if a couple came in and asked you to give him some psychoeducation about sex during pregnancy, what would you respond with? Yeah. She'll be like, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Pro-sex, which is great, you know, but sometimes our partners need to hear that. I yeah. tell you, women get so much information, information overload, and we don't do the same thing for fathers. So it's really important that it's a bit of a shared experience of what we learn. So... One question that came up a lot is how to make trying for baby less of a transaction, which I'm sure yeah. you hear this all the time. And I think you even brought it up a little bit on the Q&A, how, like when all you want is a baby. And so it just becomes a transaction. It's true, right? Because like yeah. you're specifically like only having sex at a specific time and you're waiting for any ejaculation for that time, right? So like <laughs> this is like a like it, it like becomes, you know pretty clinical. So an important thing that I would recommend trying is 
don't make it, it doesn't, just because you're doing it on a schedule doesn't mean it has to be a clinical thing. You can still have candles, you can still dim the lights, you can still wear something that you feel comfortable in. You don't have to take all of the romance out of sex or all of the pleasure out of sex just because it's for procreation. You can still involve sex toys. You can still bring your vibrator in. You can still, you know, start in the shower and then move to the bed, right? So there's different things you still can do. But I think that when we have our eyes on the prize and we are like looking down a tunnel, we kind of forget about everything else. We forget how to connect with our partner. We forget what the point of sex is. And that's another thing to remember is what of the is the point of sex? Is it just to make a baby or is it because we want to connect in this way during our baby making experience? Is that the same advice you would give for women who are going through IVF or any of that? Because that also becomes very, very clinical. Yes. So absolutely. So IVF can be difficult, especially when um, you are doing your hormonal injections because there can be pain at the site, right? So when we have pain and bruising, that can really tell our bodies, like, no, nothing sexual, I'm in pain. Mm -hmm. So something that's important to think about is like, yeah, like what feels um, pleasure focused and pain free for my body. What are my hormones? We're putting hormones into our body that can also have something where for some people they get incredibly aroused and really excited. So it can just be one of the things to think about like this when we say like, it's really important to know yourself and to keep it going, right? If I know that you want to know what the only, you know what the times I've really, a great activity to do, let me rephrase, great activity to do is think about what's the time in your life you've had great sex, was it that one time that we got a little drunk and decided to role play when we'd never done that before? Was it that one time that we had the vibrator out the whole time? Was it the one time where we um, where started outside and it felt a little frisky or in the car? So if you think back into the times where you had positive sexual experiences, what made them positive? What worked about it? What made it safe? And how do we bring that into the present? Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you so much for Happy doing this. Here. This has been an awesome conversation. I think a lot of people will really love it. And yeah. you gave a lot of practical tips that I think people can kind of take away from. And Good. I just like continuing this like sort of very sex positive vibe <laughs> because it's so taboo, especially like with families and marriage and everything. Um, well, so where can people find you and maybe if they go to you or do you do, you do virtual consult <laughs> so, seeing so, patients? So if you want to um, work with, I don't currently see clients, but I have 20 amazing clinicians that work with me and my um, I own the therapy group. You can just go to the therapygroup.com. You can hear me on Shrink Chicks podcast. You can follow us at all the, all the social medias. Um, and, the, you know, the number one takeaway that if anyone can get something out is that you deserve to have pleasure, you deserve to have sex, and there are many ways to do it, even if it's not great right now. So just because it's not working right now, I have seen people come back from just complete desert to having amazing, wonderful, great, fulfilling sex lives, that if you want to work towards it, you are meant to be a sexual person. Well, that's great. I'm happy you said that. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Especially for a lot of the women listening who are struggling with a lot of this yes. postpartum, yeah. et cetera. Yes. Yeah. Well, that is it for this episode of Betcha's Moms podcast. Thank you so much, Emily. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, follow Betcha's Moms on Instagram. Follow me at Aileen. Follow Brittany at Britt Rich. And remember, there are no rules in this podcast. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom, right, Regina? Please stop talking. 
The Betches Moms podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales-Pico with hosts Aileen Drexler and Brittany Levine. Editing by Stacey Wong. Social media by Brittany Levine. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow us at Betches Moms on Instagram and send us your emails to moms at betches.com. Betches.